Put that coffee down. That's a clown question, bro. Okay, another week, another episode off script with Lance Zerline and Eric Layden. We have a fantastic guest for you today, Chris Ballard, the GM of the Indianapolis Colts, the general manager. This guy's he's he's incredible. Um, we had this conversation a couple weeks ago, and in fact, it was just before Memorial Day, and then after everything that happened and has been going on in America, we've been a little hesitant to drop these podcasts because truthfully they seem a little trivial with everything that's going on. Um, however, Chris held a press conference a couple days ago via Skype from his basement and, uh, he made some really powerful, powerful remarks. Uh, no surprise once you listen to this man and, and get to hear his thoughts on just about everything. So we thought it important to go ahead and, uh, and play that press conference for you. Uh, so you can listen to his remarks about what's going on, about how it's affected him, his children, his family, his team, uh, and what he hopes to see from not only our country, but the league and, uh, even himself and his family specifically. So, um, we're going to play that press conference for you. And then we're going to jump right into a conversation and we dig into his history and how he evaluates players, something that he has been very successful at as a GM. Um, we get into his favorite television shows, his favorite theater. He's a huge theater buff. Uh, in fact, he majored in theater at Wisconsin for a year. Anyway, you're going to love this one. It's Chris Ballard. If I played football, I'd run through a wall for this man. Enjoy this episode. Here we go. I'm not here to talk about football um, and I don't have a, I don't have a prepared statement. I've got some notes, um, but I'm just going to talk about, you know, how, I'm, how we're feeling, how I'm feeling, you know, kind of what I've experienced here over the past 10 days, um, you know, watching what's going on in our country, then watch, watched what happened, you know, the last two days and which you look, I've been in this league 20 years and might've been as most as, as impactful of two days um, that I've ever been a part of. Um, and I'm proud of the leadership that we have in terms of Frank Wright, um, what he stands for as a man. He stands for everything that's right. Um, and, and to watch him lead right now makes me very proud um, to watch our players um, speak with what's on their hearts and on their minds. Makes me very proud to watch David Thornton, one of the unsung heroes of our organization, lead the charge um, for change. Um, he's a he's a special human being. He's a special person. I consider him a, a close friend and just lucky to lucky to have him have have him around and on our team. Feel very fortunate. But I can't sit here and remain silent because that's exactly what we've done. Every time our black community screams and yells for help, we have to end social injustices and racial inequalities. We have to end the police violence against our black communities. 
You know, Black Lives Matter. I don't understand why that's so freaking hard for the white community to say. Black Lives Matter. I've been ignorant. I've been ignorant to the real problem. Um, And I'm ashamed of that. I just came to the realization here over the last 10 days with some really hard, difficult conversations that we've had as an organization, as a team, with my family, with my sons. Uh, And I've been ignorant to the real problem. This, This is not a black problem. This is a white problem. This is a this is an issue that we have to talk about. And we can't we can't sugarcoat it. We can't sugarcoat our way out of this. We can't go back into our bubble because that's what we've always done. We've always gone right back into our into our bubble and we've never really listened. We haven't listened. I haven't listened. We haven't listened as a country. White America refuses to listen. We want to keep things the same and it can't, or we're continue down the same path. We're continuing down and that has to change and nothing will change until we do that. I'm ashamed of that. I'm embarrassed by that. I pride myself on connecting and really getting to know people and caring for them. And look, I, I, don't get it. Don't get, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, our children, my wife and I teach love and respect um, everybody, no matter what their, their, their race, you know, whatever their religion is, whatever their sexual preferentation, it doesn't matter. We, we teach them to respect and love, but we didn't teach them, you know, really what they need. To, it's gotta be more than that. It's gotta be more than that. And I had long talks with our kids, especially my son, you know, here over the last week. Um, My wife's out of town with the girls right now. Um, So my son's just been us in the house and, um, you know, about what's going on in our country. And they have no idea. That's my fault. That's my fault as a father. You know, it starts when they're young. It starts in our families. Um, Kids are not born to hate. They're not. They don't have any clue about race. They're taught it. They're taught it at home. And when I hear stories, it breaks my heart. Like the last two days, listening to our players talk, listen to our coaches talk. What kind of place do we live in where they feel uncomfortable buying a, buying a car and afraid that they're going to be racially profiled because of what they're driving? What kind of country and place do we live in where a black man and his family go into a restaurant and they get second looks. It's not a good place. I was ignorant to the fact I knew it, but I was ignorant to the fact that it was happening. And shame on me. That won't happen again. We're going to stand up for what's right. We're going to stand up for what's right as an organization. People deserve it. This is about humanity. About human. This is about human lives we're talking about here. How can you, you got to have some empathy for the human life. We're all the same. Like I was naive to this. Like I, I, I'm very naive because I think, well, okay, I, I don't see color. Um, but 
I'm naive to think that everybody else is the same way. And, and, and then there's little things that I did that I didn't realize that was hurting other people. And we've had some great talks, you know, when I got to listen to a close friend that I've worked with for a long time, tell me, and I, and I talked to him and his wife last night, you know, tell me that, you know, the things they've had to deal with over time and for me to not be empathetic for that is just flat wrong. Um, you know, explaining to my kids, they didn't understand the protest and the violence. You know, I explained to them, look, people are trying to peacefully protest, but they're screaming and yelling for help. Like, I didn't agree with the violence, but I understood it. Like, I understood the violence. They're screaming for help. They want to help. Look at the signs. I can't breathe. Stop killing black people. They're screaming for help. And we and it's our job to help. If you've got any decency in you, you've got to want to help. And that's our duty. That's what this country's about. That's what this country was built upon. How do we, how do we, and I'm going I'm to read because it said, I mean, it, it, look, this is in our, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, that ain't happening right now. That's not happening. We consider and say, oh, yes, it, no, it's not. It's not. How does the black community, and this is how I kind of explained it to my children, my son the other day. How does the black community feel when they see George Floyd with a knee on his throat and dying because of it. Then to have three people watch it, three other people watch it and not do anything. That's like that. That's what we're doing right now as a country. We're watching it and we're not doing anything about it. That makes me sad. To have a fear that every time you live every day, you come into contact with a police officer when a black American comes into contact with a police officer and they're scared and they're fearful of what could happen. That is wrong. That is dead wrong. This is how I put it to my son the other day. I said, I said, okay, close your eyes. And I want you to think about this. Police officer's got a man, got his knee on him. He's, he's choking him. He's sucking all the air out of him. And I want you to think that's your father who's white. Think of what your reaction would be and think about seeing that over and over again. What would your reaction be? You'd be angry. You'd be hurt. I want to thank all our players, all of them, every single freaking one of them. They saw, they, they brought it to light. And look, you're either, I thought Jacoby Brissett put it best when he said he, you're either part of the problem. I mean, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And for us to sit here and remain silent, we're your, you're part of the problem. I want to do my part. I know we can't fix this overnight. I know it's going to take time, but I want to do my part. My family will do our part. You can bet on that. <laughs> 
There he, there is. he is. Well, Lance's direction stunk. It didn't stink. I mean, you you said we could do it now, or we can do it in twenty seven or twenty three minutes. Well, you said four thirty, and you were asking about a link, so I was letting you have a chance to do it now if you wanted to. Eric, when are we getting the break back on TV? Am oh, I the only person man. that still watches the break? Do you still go back and watch it? Oh, damn right. Drives my wife bananas. Tell me your favorite uh, episode. <laughs> Tell me your favorite episode. The one where you puked in the plane? Yeah, yeah. In the back? That, that was that was freaking awesome. <laughs> um, we did that probably, oh gosh, we must have done that seven or eight times. I had just a mouthful of of like basically like vegetable pea soup is the way you do that and then you and then behind or like off camera but behind me were these like essentially these hoses where some props guys were going to syringe more vegetable pea soup so as i vomit they also shoot it through a syringe and it shoots up on the glass and of course, Pablo, every time we did it, had to change because he has, you know, throw up all over the back of his face. head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that show, my wife hated it too, by the way. Um, but the, the episode in which, um, Rob Bryden and Michelle Gomez kidnap us in the middle of the desert to become their, their sex slaves. And you uh, find the, uh, the, the idol boner man. I went and looked it up online. I couldn't find it. Yes, yeah, so Boner Man. So I, so Boner Man, when I, when the show got canceled, I was doing a movie in Bulgaria. And I, the first thing I did was call the producer and said, I want Boner Man. Like, I know the show's canceled, but I want that in my office. I need Boner Man. That is a talisman that I need from this show. Nope, wouldn't give it to me. Apparently, really? uh, Warner Brothers owns it, or whoever the fuck owns it. We'll give it to Boner Man. <laughs> Unbelievable. That'd be a great addition. Just um, oh. <laughs> some things we have. My in kids, the building? my kids, my kids would love it. Um, I mean, that's that's my 15 year old son right now. Anyways, uh, when he walks <laughs> when he walks around the house. <laughs> what kind of what kind of you never told me what kind of kid were you when you were younger? Besides oh, being a bad. belligerent. You know what's so funny about you is that so this guy Joey Molinati or whatever who does the the imitations really good, good young guy. So I found out that he is in Indianapolis, and you got to look this guy up, Eric. I don't know if you've seen him or oh, not. He I, does. I met him. He told me him. he met you. So I'm talking to him. I said, I said, oh, you're there in Indianapolis. I said, so you probably met Chris. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I'm not a Colts fan. I'm a Steelers fan. I said, that's what Chris was growing up. He goes, yeah. He told me. And I said, that's classic Chris Ballard, totally belligerent. Hometown was a Houston Oilers, and he is the rival. He's a he's a fan of the rival team in the midst of the nastiest, you know, well, it wasn't nasty. It was a one-way nasty. Oh, the Steelers beat the one of the Oilers. We were just yeah. kicking the Oilers' ass. And I told Oliver Luck I was at a game one time when uh, when Pittsburgh just beat that crap out of Oliver. He just beat the hell out of him. It was one of the games he actually came in and played, man, and always got a always got a kick out of that. I'll tell you a great book, a great story. When we got beat by Indy, when I was working with the Bears, um, we got beat by the Colts in the Super Bowl. And so um all the scouts, you know, afterwards we come in for February meetings and we're getting we stay at the Marriott Suites and we get on, we get we're all getting on the elevator, and this kid, this little kid. 
has, you know, a Colts of Peyton Manning jersey on. And so all the scouts, we get in there, and I had a Bears cat on, and he, he looked at me, he goes, we beat y'all. And I just looked at him and said, shut up, fat boy. <laughs> His mom was right there. She just had this look on her face. <laughs> you know what's so funny is that's so on brand, Eric, because I've heard stories from scouts who have said, you should see Ballard up in the press box. It's poise at its finest. I got the old school six, uh, what is it, four prong four prong pin. We had these all when we were little kids. And Cal, who was my assistant at the time, my first year here, I get all pissed off in, in our box. And I fire one of these things and it hits the window and just splatters everywhere. So, no, I, I've gotten better. The year, two years ago, when we're playing Tennessee to go, you know, the winner gets in the playoffs. We're, we we start out one in five. We go on this freaking run. And, you know, we had a good team, and Tennessee's good. But we're in Tennessee playing. And Kyle's sitting next to me in the box, and I am just going off about a call. I mean, if this is a tight game. I'm like, holy, if we lose this game, I'm going to be pissed. We've done come back from one and five. We got a chance to get in the playoffs. And I'd start dropping some choice words mm-hmm. at the officials on a call. And one of their beat reporters tweets out, Ballard is dropping F-bombs during because of a bad call. But how do you – I mean, you can't possibly keep your composure in situations like that. I mean, not with I've, not with everything on the line. As much work as goes into a season, and it's coming down to the very end. It sounds a little bit like you might have a little Kevin Spacey swimming with sharks. Now, do you treat Cal <laughs> like shit, or, or is it always towards the – Is it do you, do you really fuck with your assistants, or is it strictly at the officials? It's usually at the officials. <laughs> but sometimes. Um, you said usually. And, they, and look. Well, I mean, look, you're in a you're in these boxes and they want you to, you know, it's it's a professional environment. And look, the media is doing their job and they got a job to do. Reporters are working. Um, and I've gotten a lot better about keeping my composure. Um, <laughs> but there are some definite emotional moments. I mean, look, our li- I mean, there's livelihoods at stake here each and every play and games are decided each and every play. So it it's a <laughs> It's, it's always quite interesting up in the box. Some people, some GMs are unbelievable. They have great poise and composure. I wish I could tell you I did all the time. I try. How much different is the pressure? Like, do you feel the pressure as an area scout where you don't have the same financial, you know, uh, you, success or the, the same paychecks and you're two years at a time usually as an area scout versus GM? Is there any difference for you in terms of, what you feel like as the game is going on, has that changed or is it the exact same? Exact same. When I was an area scout, I'd be on the road and I'd usually, you know, I'd, I'd go find a bar to watch the game. And I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was usually working. So I'd take that three or four hours to just go watch the game. And, and, oh, you know, especially if there was a crowd, you know, like we're playing Green Bay when I was in Chicago and you got this whole, freaking section of Green Bay people and they're kicking your ass or something ain't going right and you're getting pissed. So no, it's just, there's no difference. There's no difference in it. But that's who you are from when you were a kid. I mean, you had that intensity as a kid when you approach things. I was emotional. I was competitive, you, and, you know, very emotional. I got in a few dust ups. Yeah. <laughs> 
I had a few deaths. You were a quarterback. <laughs> I can only imagine how much you were chirping as a quarterback at at, uh, at Texas City. Um, well, if I could breathe, I would always talk. I was a big talker. Absolutely. I mean, um, but no, I mean, look, I mean, look, think about it was Lamarck, Galveston Ball, Laporte High School. I mean, just those three alone now. You better buckle it up and get ready. They were they were not good high school teams. They were freaking great high school teams. Um, and then you had Clear Lake and Clear Creek, who were both up and coming in good high school teams. And I think Clear Creek had two, a couple guys go to University of Texas that year. Um, Galveston Ball was always freaking good. I mean, and so was Lamarck. They were both loaded to the freaking gill. So, you know, I think that area at that time. Um, I mean, you had to go and you had to compete. Chris, take us through your your time at Wisconsin. I know you had injuries. Um, talk about, because your road, I don't know if you've ever told this story very often about how things went for you at Wisconsin, because it was a big turning point for you at Wisconsin in your whole life. And I know Barry Alvarez is a big part of that. Well, I mean, you know, I had a, as a freshman, I ended up redshirting, um, which I really wasn't happy about. Cause I, I actually thought I, you know, deserved to play, but I'd switched positions. We were running the option. We weren't very good. Um, I was really good on the scout team and had a big year, but then that next year going in, I, I tore my knee up. Um, and then, you know, I tore it up again the next year when Barry came in, when coach Alvarez came in, you know, here's a five, nine hundred and ninety pound wideout, you know, that's got a banged up knee who, you know, he's trying to gut the program. I remember we had nine straight weeks of these off-season conditioning programs that were just freaking unbelievable. I mean, all the guys that survived it. But I think there was 10 to 12 guys from my recruiting class that survived it and stayed. Um, I think we were 1-11 that first year with Barry. I was hurt um, and then hurt again the next year with a knee. And – we went five and six. And then that last year, he he saw the way I worked. He knew I loved football. Um, he knew I cared. He knew I was good for the locker room. Um, because I wasn't I wasn't intimidated by telling guys what I thought <laughs> how things needed to go. And I mean, he, he actually let me, you know, when he when I when it just came to a point where I wasn't gonna play, he he went through, look, I'm gonna treat you just like you're a GA. And I was I mean, I was living with five other players. So there was a delicate, you know, balance there between what I was hearing. I'm sitting in, I mean, think about it. I'm sitting in staff meetings, all of them travel. I mean, I'm doing everything with as like a, a coach. As a player? Yeah. Still my last year. And uh, that was, that was just to be able to see that. And the people that were on that, the coaches that were on that staff were unbelievable. You're talking Jay Norvell, who's now the head coach at um, Nevada Reno, uh, Billy Callahan who's probably one of the best O-line coaches in the league. Dan McCarney was the head coach at Iowa State. Um, Kevin Cosgrove, Brad Childress, who was the head coach of the Vikings. I mean, the staff was loaded. Um, and then with Barry, you know, how he directed it and how he turned the program and the patience that he had. And, like, this is how we're going to do it. And, look, the same values today are the same ones that programs run on it was run on 25 years ago when he first walked in the door. I mean, they've got their little spin on it and twist, but still the same basic fundamentals of how they built that program is the same. 
So you're on your road to being a so you're a coach now at this stage, right? What, yeah. what happens after Wisconsin? Where do you go? Um, well, I, was, I wanted to go to law school. <laughs> That's what I was going to do. Really? Um, but I, I just I went home and you know kind of debated. You know, what am I going to law school? Am I going to work? And then I ended up working at Hitchcock um, at Hitchcock Junior High, Junior High. Gene Sharp was the head football coach at Hitchcock. And he asked me, I saw him one day, he said, what are you doing? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what the hell I want to do in life. I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, why don't you come teach and coach? And I ended up at Crosby Middle School and, you know, kind of caught the bug. Like, you know what, this is, I think this is what I want to do. Coach Sharp had, you know, connections to Texas A&I where Ron Harms was, you know, Gene called Ron Harms and said, look, I got a young guy that I think you need to hire. And so I went down. Next thing you know, I'm coaching. I'm making a hundred bucks a month, and I get to stay in the dorms. Um, and I'm coaching at Texas A&M Kingsville. A hundred bucks a month. Wow. Hundred bucks a month. I mean, that's like the old days of college where you're just trying to you're trying to grind on on ramen noodles. And what did you eat? Like what what? I guess I, it's not like you have this big training table at Texas A and I or Texas A and M Kingsville. Had you had dorm, dorm food. food. Oh yeah. yeah, I lived in I lived in the dorms, just like as a student again. Um, actually, I think I was the door monitor, but I don't think I did much monitoring. Um, <laughs> did you get a bonus for that? You get an extra no, ten bucks a month. I got <laughs> I got meals. Um, but when I got there, my first year. I mean, like my whole thing was I wanted to coach. Like I didn't, I was going to be a GA, but I wanted to have a position. So he gave me, he let me coach White House that first year. And it was, it was great. I mean, I, I, I mean, I had a great group. It was a really talented team. We lost in the finals. We had, I mean, we were freaking good now. Off that team, we had Jermaine Mayberry, who was a first round pick. Kevin Doggins played in the league. George Diaz played in the league. I mean, we were freaking loaded. I remember telling the guys at Wisconsin, I said, I said, look, I said, if we play 22 on 22, we'll beat you. I said, but if we, <laughs> have the depth, if we play 22, we'll, we'll beat you. We're talented. Um, I broke my collarbone my first year there. We had got the dog kicked out of the spot. Not bad, but we had lost the central state of Ohio. We get beat. So I'm all pissed off when we get on practice on Tuesday because we didn't, there's a couple of times we didn't block the perimeter right now. And, and I said, well, I'm going to show you how to block the perimeter. So I go to cut one of our guys and I break my freaking collarbone right in the middle of practice. <laughs> oh, it gets better. So I stand up and I'm like, Holy shit, what, what? I, this hurts. And the trainer goes, they got to take you to the hospital. So they take me to the hospital and set it. And I went back out to practice like about an hour, and a half, like an hour and a half later. I got this arm in a sling. <laughs> that sounds like a coach. O move. I've heard stories about him. <laughs> Taking his shirt off and trying to fight guys in the locker room and teach them how it's done. I never had the fighting stuff I'd learned at that point. Coach Arms used to always tell me, he goes, look here, dude. One time one of these guys is going to fight you, and I'm not going to pull him off of you. It's your <laughs> – you better be able to survive it. And you had some dogs over there too. Oh, yeah. We were loaded, man. We were loaded. Hey, I, I want to ask you about that because people always wonder – people are probably wondering, well, how in the world – do you have these guys drafted at such a small school? And a lot of times, and people are starting to figure it out through watching Last Chance U, but this has been going on for years where there's some talented guys who end up in smaller schools because either grades or they're troublemakers or whatever the case may be. 
you're in a business now where you're drafting players or you were scouting players and you've got to determine, you got to project the player. You're playing poker and you got to find out what kind of hand he has as a person. And you have to figure out if a guy is a turd or if he is just immature. What does Steve Jobs say? You can't connect the dots going forward, but you can connect them going backwards of how you ended up where you are today. Um, and I can, like I can link it all the way back to Texas city when, you know, I worked at my dad, my stepfather's tire station. Uh, my grandfather was a coach and, uh, you know, we would travel around and, you know, do his little work that he was doing on the side. Um, and then the, to Wisconsin and then the a and in Kingsville where, you know, you had to, you know, we had a rougher kid. Um, but then when I figured out they love football and love to play, um, they would never let anything get in the way of the feeling they got on game day. And that's what kind of helped me have a little experience and wisdom at a young age of what kind of kids you can take that have issues that are still going to make it. Um, Cause we had a lot of them and a lot of them played a lot of years and they matured over time. Um, and that's the question you have to have, you know, you have to be able to answer that question. Are they going to get it? Um, in time to where their career's not over. Um, and if they love to play, if they really love the game and it's about playing and that feeling they get on Sunday, they'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. If they love to practice and they love to play, they'll figure it out. If they don't really love it, if they're doing it for a paycheck, eventually it'll catch up to them. It's probably like anything we do in life. If you're not doing what you love to do, eventually, eventually it's going to catch up and burn you and you're not going to get to where you want to go. Did you ever see a guy, I want to ask you, did you ever see, sometimes you can fall in love with a player and you want him, you want him to be better, you want him, and, and, but you get blinded a little bit, or maybe you get snowed or conned. It happens to a lot of people. Did you, whether you're at Chicago or Kansas City um, or, or even in India as a GM, have you ever fallen into that trap or seen other people fall into that trap? Well, we all do. I mean, yeah. look, I mean, we want talent. You know, being disciplined enough to really stay with what you talk about and believe and live versus, you know, a guy that's got so much talent that, you know, on Sunday, he's going to make a huge difference for you. But, you know, how's he going to fit in a locker room? Can he sustain it? Can he do it over time? Um, those are the questions you have to be. And yeah, I mean, Lord knows I've, I've I mean, I've gotten wiser, I guess, as as I've aged here and seen more things and don't t- quite take the same amount of risk. Uh, but I always ask the same question is, does he love football? And is he a good teammate? If he'll answer those two questions, I'm willing to live with some stuff. I can usually, we can usually make them work. Well, clearly you're making them work. Cause if my numbers are right, you're 29 for 29 uh, since 2017 with guys drafting guys and they're all still in the league. So you know, that I, I and I know that you've had, you know, a lot of history and there's, you know, being a scout and being a coach at all the the, the levels in, in which you were starting at Wisconsin, even like you said, your last year that, you know, that that obviously plays a big part of it. But there's not a lot of not a lot of guys that probably that have a record like that. Is there um, beyond those two questions, beyond those two questions, uh, not that you're going to give away any of your you know secrets, but are there certain parameters you look at maybe certain guys present company included that you listen to certain draft analysts uh that you that you really rely on or is it something it's gut and the guys in that room with you all right so i'm a 
I'm going to let you in on a couple of secrets. Right. First thing, number one, I have a great group of scouts yeah. as talented as I've been around in the league. And, and, and look, I mean, I'm not smart enough and good enough to, you know, do this on my own, but then we have these letters written up on the board, LDK. <laughs> I know those letters. Lance, Lance don't know. <laughs> so, so I say, get Lance's report. <laughs> bullshit getting ready to come out of this. I said, so you, so I you said, paid Lance. we're going opposite. I said, whatever it is, just go opposite. And we got a shot. You paid Lance. It's all about fading Lance. And that's how they ended up with Quincy Wilson. One of the things I really like about Chris, and I'll get to the backstory of how I know him, because people always ask that, is I learned something from him. I took a lot from my dad. My dad's a longtime coach, and I've learned a lot from him. But I've learned a lot from Chris in terms of evaluation stuff. And I probably wouldn't be doing the NFL gig if, if it weren't for, you know, meeting him and talking to him over the years and learning philosophy. And one of the things that he does great is being humble enough to admit when you make a mistake and get away from it and not feel and not try to cover your ass because we all make mistakes in everything, right? In in life, we make mistakes as parents, as dads, whatever, as husbands. So when I make a mistake on an evaluation of a player, I try to go back and find out why did I miss this? Why was I a second rounder on Pat Mahomes? And I've already worked out in my mind why I missed on Pat Mahomes, why I thought he was a second rounder. If you can't be humble enough to admit your mistakes in life, period, and especially in something like evaluation where you have to project, you will get your ass kicked in the same way over and over and over all the time. How do we get better? How do you get better? How do you improve? You know, how do you keep getting better every day if you're not if you're not willing to admit that you got room for growth? I mean, you know, it's funny. The, we used to have this huge Super Bowl trophy in our in our indoor, and I'm, we we took we finally took it down. I said, "Take that down, man!" And they go, "Well, it's, that's the goal." Yeah, that's the goal, and that's what we're trying to win every year. But what do we do when we win it? Do we just stop? No, we want to. You got to continually be, you know, willing to grow. That's why I give, you know, teams like New England and what they've done. I give them credit, man, for them to be able to reset every year. And continue to get better and, and drive and stay hungry and stay humble in the process and keep just living it. I mean, that's a that's a hard thing to do in any in any profession. Yeah, it's, that, it's why I take all the Emmys off my shelf. I don't because <laughs> if I'm looking at them, you know, they should have gave you their, one for the brink. They should have gave I, you. I'm still pissed about the brink. I, I'm, I know I'm not going to lie to you. I'm still and I appreciate I'm, that. But they're they're they they breed a level of complacency that I'm just not willing to have. You know what I mean? Um, and so, I, yeah, I have. You know, it, it, I just tell my manager take them away. You know? so yeah, because I haven't them. I haven't seen them. That's amazing. It must yeah. be instantaneous because I've never seen them in the background ever once. Mm-mm. I often don't even go. You know. Yeah. You probably just don't even seen the show speeches. Up. I don't even go to the Emmys. You don't even show up at the Emmys. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. You just said, I'll be back next year. Uh, hold on a second. La- so did you watch last, um, last dance, the Jordan doc? Yeah. So uh, what about, what about that in terms of his ability to crank it up every single year, but he had to start lying to himself to motivate himself. I mean, he would take anything as a slight, for me, I know that's supposed to be a character flaw, but I got to be honest with you. I look at it as like a sign of admiration. Oh, it's, he's one of the that's why he's one of the rarest of rare athletes to. You know, that's what we all aspire to have on our teams is a guy that will 
press and prod and um, and then live it. You can't do that if you're not putting in the, the work. So he's putting in the work and he's expecting everybody else to put in the work at his level. And if you don't, and it's all about winning, it's not, it is about winning and whatever it takes to win, you've got to be willing to go there with me or you will not be here. Plain and simple. You, I mean, I, I talk to our, we talk to our team a lot about the locker room and I tell them all the time, we're only going to go as far as you'll take us. And sometimes you got to have some uncomfortable conversations in that locker room to get people to go to the next level. And it might be a guy you respect and, and are friends with, but at the end of the day, for you to be able to, uh, you got a challenge when you see something that's wrong, that's going to affect winning. And, and Michael Jordan refused to anything that got in the way of winning. Now you're out. You know, that was eliminated. Distractions were eliminated. I got great Quint, respect. Does uh, Quentin Nelson have that? Quentin, Quentin is a pretty rare competitor. Um, he's pretty, he's pretty rare. Um, and he does it with his, he's growing, I would say growing vocally, but it's in terms of his care for, he might be the best, as good a teammate as I've ever been around in terms of care for others, um, wanting them to do well. Um, and then his passion for the game. We're playing, (laughs) we're playing Kansas city this year. Here's what I love about him. And I love it when players give me crap. So we're, we got a bunch of injuries that week and we've got like a small defensive end playing three technique and on the scout team. And he comes sprinting by me. What the blank Ballard? I'm playing Chris, we're playing Chris Jones and you got a 230 pound defensive end. How the hell am I supposed to get better? <laughs> he sprints back. People's eyes are about that big as he's yelling at me. I said, boy, I love that, man. Great. <laughs> That's good stuff. Well, because he demands the most from you, and he's going to demand the most from the guys in the locker room. And that's, well, you want you – know. look, and that's, a, and that's what you want. You want mm-hmm. – you, you know they, they feel good when they, when they know they can be honest with you and know that I'm not going to cut them. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good thing. I had, a, I had someone tell me a story that Quentin came by your locker room in the midst of that losing streak. When you all talked about the one-in-five start, and he's like – I will never let this happen again or oh, something he's passionate. like that. He's a passionate – he is passionate and it bleeds to his teammates. I'm telling you, so his first year he makes the Pro Bowl. Frank and I call him and, hey, Quentin, hey, congrats, man. You made the Pro Bowl. What about Ryan Kelly? Did Ryan Kelly make the Pro Bowl? What about Costanzo? It wasn't about him. He never makes it about him. It's always about his teammates, and that's what makes him really a unique, unique uh, player. Uh, going back a little bit to Jordan, because I watched that and then I, I just watched episode one or part one of the Lance documentary. Have you watched that on, on, mm-hmm. Lance? we watched it this weekend. Yeah. What, what are your feelings on that? Cause I have a, I have a pretty strong opinion about him and, and, but before, not before I watched this, but after watching it. That's the, that's a tough one. Cause I want to watch the second part and I have no, cause I didn't follow mm-hmm. cycling at all. Um, I followed his story. And then when you heard, um, you know, that at a time when they were doping and doing it the illegal way, um, it taints it. I mean, it just does. And I think I think anytime you make a mistake like that and you just own it and admit it and move on, um, that's the best way to handle it. I mean, to justify it at all is wrong. 
Um, look, he was a, the shame of it is Lance was a, was a great athlete, but he was dealing in a sport that freedom where everybody was, if you weren't open, you, <laughs> you weren't even going to get on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, you know, when you're talking, the majority of cyclists were doing it. So, um, yeah, I mean, no, uh, that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Cause I don't, I don't know enough other than what I saw the other night. Yeah. I think for me, I just, I you know, I watched Jordan and that's a rare, rare guy. Right. But, but when I watch Lance Armstrong, to me, I see arrogance. I don't see any, I don't see a humble bone in that body. And that's not the same as when I watch Jordan or when I've heard, uh, Kobe talk. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, I don't know that he was in a solo sport. Now, yes, team, there are teams in cycling, but he was a solo, a solo act. So maybe it worked for him, but, but I find, I found him highly unlikable in that, in that uh, episode of television. And that was drugs removed. I just mean as a person from 15 to the age he is to the stuff they shot now. And, and, and it felt to me like there was no growth um, I, I saw little remorse and I saw no growth. He was a shithead when he was 15 and they talked about it and he talked about it, but then he was also a shithead at 50 or however old he is right now. And I just, I don't know. I, I, I oftentimes with athletes watch and, and I feel like that line between confidence and arrogance is so important. I don't know if you can reprogram that. That's a hard thing at a young age when you've not programmed team into people. Um, it's hard to go from a, from a, uh, you know, from a sport where you've been doing it and getting all the credit and all the glory. And then all of a sudden you're part of a, a cycling team where that they've helped you win, but you're still used to getting, and we're winning because of me. That's a hard thing to break. That's the, like Jordan and grew up playing team sports. You know, they knew they needed to have other people to win. Doesn't mean they weren't driven to be the best ever. Cause you could see Kobe and Jordan and Matt. I mean, all those guys wanted to, their egos wanted to be considered. They might not ever say it, but they do. Um, but they wanted their teams to win first, plain and simple. They, they wanted the team to win first. To me, that's the unique quality that all the great, the, all the special players, man, they want the team to win and they're going to do whatever. And the great ones want to be a, a big focal point of that. They should be. You think that's why I know you're a big fan of playing sports, just like we grew up, which was playing all the sports whenever you could do. But but when I think about it, my baseball, my football, my basketball, every team situation is different. It's a different type of team situation. Do you think that's what benefits younger players from playing in a variety of different sports besides just not burning out on the sport? That's why I love football so much. I think it's good for kids um, because it's the one, like it's not like I was saying, like in basketball, you can have one great, you can have one great player and still win, especially at lower levels. If you have one great player, man, he just he just he kills you. Football is the one sport where I don't care it, it if you if you don't come together as a team and play together, you won't win. I don't care if you have you can have the best eleven. The most talented teams don't always win. It's the teams that come together and play together. Those teams win. You learn, you learn so many lessons. You, you enter a locker room that is socioeconomically, race, religion, all that goes out the door, man. 
we're figuring it out. We're coming together as a team. You learn discipline. You learn what hard work is. You learn what to struggle. You learn to fail. And it's really the one sport where as a team for you to win, everybody has to be on point. And one guy messes up and it screws. You can play great defense in a corner, doesn't do his job. Next thing you know, they're, they're completing a deep ball on you. And it's no different than anything else. So that's that's why I'm so that's why I'm such a fan of football for kids. Even though I know everybody, you know, I think it's more dangerous not to play than it is to play. Yeah, I mean, Winston Justice doesn't miss a block. Lindell White goes fourth and one, and USC wins its third national title. But we don't have to go there right now. Um, no big deal. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not still thinking about that at all. So it's not. Did you go to SC? Did you go to SC? Did yeah. you? What years were you there? Uh, I was there ninety-seven to oh one. Okay, right before, so you're right. Right before, yeah, right for I Pete. I was there with Hackett. Yeah, I was there with Pete. So okay. I was there when when Notre Dame and UCLA was kicking our ass, and then right when I graduated is yeah when Pete Carson came. Um, well, Carson was there, but Carson, you know, that was he the took year, off. The year after. I, yeah, it took off like the Orange Bowl against Iowa. Yeah, he took and off. They really took off, and and um. Yeah, I wonder though, what do you, is it, is youth football safe? It's always a trickle down from what the league. So as the league gets safer, everything else gets safer. And taking the head out of the game mm-hmm. is really, I mean, you know, back when we played, you know, stick your face mask right in the middle of somebody to tackle. I mean, mm-hmm. just the verbiage that they use in terms of taking the head completely out of the game when you hit, when you block. Uh, when you're making a tackle, when you're breaking a tackle, that makes the game safer. Um, and, you know, a lot of it depends on the coaches, but the coaches are getting trained so well now that I do think it's a safe sport. I don't think it's a – I mean, look, it's in it, like with anything, there's there's going to be – any sport you play, there's going to be a danger to it. I mean, a baseball, you get hit in the head with a freaking – I don't care if it's an 80-mile-an-hour fastball, it's going to freaking sting and cause some damage. Um, but I think there's dangerous in, in, in every sport, but I mean, ah, dog, man, we can't, we can't put our kids in bubble wrap and expect them to, you know, not to not thrive. And I'm not saying it doesn't have to be sports. I mean, there's a lot of other things that kids can do. Um, I'm just an advocate for that. Cause that's what my kids are into and we're into, mm-hmm. but there's so many other avenues that they can go to compete and learn and grow. But I think the, I think one of the things that we're scared of as parents and I fall into it, but we're scared to let our kids fail. You know, we don't want them to fail. We don't want them to struggle and fail. And that's to me, that's, that's a disservice to our children when we don't, we got to let them fail and figure it out, not pick them up. Um, We can guide and we can help, but we got to let their butts fail and struggle because I'm telling you, they're going to learn more, they're going to learn more survival skills by failing and learning to get up on their own and fight their own battles and struggle than they will with us saying, it's okay. Um, you'll get a do-over. No, when you get out, man, life, you don't get a lot of do-overs. I'm not, I'm not going to sing your praises here and say everything's going to be okay. Cause that's not, that's not being realistic. That is one of the hardest things to do, I think, as a father. And, and and my boys are young. You know, they're five and seven. But, you know, I, I do think that we we want to support, but we also – and we don't – you know, we're not looking to go to the hospital every day. But with the boys, it happens. You know what I mean? We've got broken arms here, stitches in the face, and the whole nine. Um, but, 
you know, I, it is one of the hardest things to do as a father. And I, I find myself all the time battling that. We know how we fail in sports or in my business and media or whatever. How do you fail as an actor? Like how, what, what have you learned from just not getting roles? Does that humble you? Or do you, have you ever failed after you've gotten a role? Is it, I don't know that there's, uh, I don't know that there's a business in which you fail more regularly. If you want to call it failing. I mean, but if I, if, if you consider every job I have read for that I didn't get failing, uh, there's, there's no telling. I mean, it's just the, the amount of resilience, uh, you have to have to do this is unlike anything that I ever tried to do. Um, but I also, I also think that anything, you know, when you're doing professions as competitive as, as the ones we're doing that require the self-motivation and the self-discipline, the week's not going to survive. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like Chris said, you know, you have to love it. You have to fucking love it. So when I'm out here in LA and I'm grinding and I'm waiting tables and I've got no money and my friends are going out. But I've got something the next day and, you know, you have to have a self-discipline. You have to have a self-motivation and a self-discipline that says, I love this so much. I will not fail. I will not allow myself to fail, even though for 115 auditions in a row, I haven't gotten it and I'm barely making my rent, but I know one of them is going to hit. And, you know, I mean, there's just, you have to build up a pretty hard shell to get through that. There was an interview with uh, oh Jerry Seinfeld and um, Howard Stern, and Howard Stern was talking about you know the greatness people that great and how they work, and they had a great will. And Seinfeld said they didn't have a great will; they had a love for what they're doing. You know, because you're if you don't love it, I mean, and I didn't make over, I don't know. I mean, I think the biggest year I think I made eighteen thousand. At 29 years old, most money I'd made at that point, you're talking, you know, I'm seven years in um, my first year in the league. I think I made 26,000. It's just I loved what I was doing and I was willing to keep doing it. And the money was never it was never in question. I just it's what I like to do. And I figured it would work out if I just keep working at my craft and, you know, doing it better. I don't think that's any different with any of us with what we do, you know, that, you know, that reach a, you know, a higher level. Did you ever think about falling back on your um, your degree that you're trying to get in a theater in Wisconsin? Were you a theater major? My first year. Oh, that's uh, it? Just one? One semester. I couldn't do it any longer. I wasn't good. I couldn't. I had a great, I had a great, um, had a great theater class. Um, and it just, there was no way playing football and fitting it all in. And then. Why and theater? Then I, Where'd that come from in Texas City? I don't think of Texas City theater majors. I had a Dr. Martin, James Martin was our theater. I took his class every year in Texas City. He was unbelievable. Probably had as much impact on me as any teacher growing up, you know, in high school. And he was he was incredible. He just he knew how to reach kids and get more out of them. Um, and he would always get on me about you have something special that you can give people if you'll get up and show the world who you are, but you got to be your authentic self at all times. And he goes, that's because that's what acting is. He goes, acting is you're reaching into different levels 
um, and figuring out really who you really are. I mean, cause there's a P probably in every role you play, Eric, there's a piece of you coming out um, in, in, in every role you play. And I just, first year I didn't know what I wanted to do. So well, I'm going to this theater route way too hard. Do you go to the theater ever? Is that something you like yeah. to do? You- oh, I love it. We love it. We go to a bunch of shows. Um, I took all the kids to see Hamilton, took my daughter to see it. And then my one son cash is just freaking obsessed with Hamilton. How do you stay in character and stay f- dialed in and focused on what you're doing each and every day? It's as to me, it's no different than being a professional athlete. You're training. I mean, you're training your voice, your facial expressions. I mean, your I mean, it's incredible what they put themselves through to get ready um, for these performances. For what the discipline it takes to get into character and into a role and make it work and believable, like make it like when I watch these movies, I'm like, holy shit, this, this shit's real. And that's a, that's a, that is a special, special skill. Other than the Brink reruns, uh, what are you, what are you watching these days? Ozark. Oh yeah. I am freaking in the Ozark and I'm not a big, like I'm not big into watching many shows. I don't have like a set, like you could ask shows and I won't know they are, but somehow we got into Ozark and, and just in the last three weeks, like I'm playing catch up. Now we're finally into like the middle of season three. But I'm in the Ozmar, Ozark. I mean, the composure and poise that dude has. I mean, he's got the freaking he's he's got the freaking cartel breathing down his neck. He's got to launder all this freaking money, and he never flinches. He just keeps coming up with freaking. I, you know what? This is what we're gonna do. This is how it's gonna work. I mean, I freaking I love Jason Bateman's character. I mean, his poise and composure under pressure are what we all dream. What we all wish we had. He's he he's the GM that sometimes is in the box that you wish you could be. That sort of composure. Oh, he's incredible. I have a I have a serious football question. You got to tell me the truth, okay? You got to be honest with me. Did you did you bring Rivers to the Colts because he has more kids than you do? <laughs> he's got a bunch. <laughs> he's moving here next week, and they're all excited. He? He'll be out of San Diego. I know. His do first one's going to college. I don't know. <laughs> wow, he's got one going to college right now. Uh huh. He's the first one's going to college. If you figure Phillips been married since college, so and they got married when he was at North Carolina State. I'm gonna tell you the visits I've had with Philip. Um, you know, Frank and Nick, my offensive coordinator, know him really well. But man, this guy, he is fun to be around. He love you want to talk about loving football. This guy loves football, and it's going to be fun to get him in, you know, it's a shame we hadn't been around him here the last few months, you know, practicing, but it'll be fun when we start training camp and get him cranked up and cause he's got, he's got real deal leadership. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see how he works with, uh, with my, my, as you know, I'm an SC guy with my boy Pittman. I think he's a really good fit. Pittman's a big guy, jump ball receiver plays outside the hashes. I mean, he's going to be reminds me of guys he played with and gelled with in San Diego. So he's, he's going to be a good fit with rivers. Not that you don't know that that's why you got him. But, uh, but Pittman, I I, watching him play for SC, he's, he's the real deal. So I'm, I'm fine. He's a, I love, you know, that's my favorite. I've got two can't, well, three. I don't want to discount Wisconsin because Wisconsin, I love the campus. But, like, two places I love going, Notre Dame. I love going to Notre Dame, and I love going to SC. I love going on that campus. Man, it's a freaking – have you ever been there, Lance? It is. No, a, I've been there. 
I mean, you just, it's beautiful. And we're going to get, we'll get Lance out, uh, for football season. Once it, once it resumes for, for a game. Uh, oh, it's one of the special, like it. it's one of the special places, man. By the way, Eric was at that USC game when Lindell White didn't get the yard and Reggie Bush was on the sideline. He was there. He was in the stands. Why do they have Lance's name first? I mean, was, you're carrying the show. It should be Eric Layden and Lance. When this is when he's gone and we recut, I'm gonna fucking kill Chris. It's gonna. <laughs> it's just laying him out for ten minutes. Chris, dude, thank you. All right, boys. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Always welcome in Indy. Hey, I appreciate it, man. I want to take you up. I'd love to come out there and see a game this season. Absolutely. Well, Bring your boys if you want. I will, man. If you're allowed. <laughs> if you're allowed, yeah. Okay. You like that music we use? It's pretty cool, isn't it? It's by the talented Josh Cook. You can find him on Instagram, Josh Cook, or at his website, herelisefo.com. H-E-R-E-L-I-E-S-F-O dot com. Super talented guy, an actor, a musician. More importantly, a friend. Our artwork is by Tony Moles. Tony's work can be found at the anthemagency.com. It's anthem without the E, just to confuse you a little bit. It's A-N-T-H-M agency.com. He's also on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, thanks to Blackland Distillery out of Fort Worth, sending fine fine spirits to all our guests as well as us and keeping us lubricated during the show if you're looking to find blackland distillery go online blacklanddistilleryfw.com they're also on instagram that's it see you next week